Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. We're in the grip of the crypto winter. New chaos in the world of cryptocurrency. FTX shocked investors by declaring bankruptcy this Investors week. now face billions of dollars in losses, just as the collapse of the Lehman Brothers. The ripple effect from crypto exchange FTX's bankruptcy filing is growing. Over a million crypto investors around the world stand to be wiped out by the collapse of FTX, a crypto exchange based in the Bahamas. Several crypto lenders have folded, the prices of many coins have plunged and regulators are now under pressure to intervene and force the crypto industry to clean up its act. On this episode, we ask, is this the end of crypto? And where does this leave millions of young investors who bought into the dream? Welcome to Money Clinic, the weekly podcast from the Financial Times about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, the FT's consumer editor. It's been a wild few weeks on the crypto front. FTX, a crypto exchange once valued at $32 billion, collapsed into bankruptcy in November. But some believe its demise is an existential moment for crypto itself. Two of my colleagues at the Financial Times have been at the heart of reporting on this story and analysing the fallout, and they've joined me today in the studio. First up, Scott Cipollina. Hi, thank you for that, Claire. Yep, um, I am Scott Cipollina. I am the FT's digital assets correspondent. And as Claire said, it's been um, knee-deep in FTX stories for the last few weeks. And from the New York office, we have Rob. Hi, Claire. I'm Rob Armstrong. I write the FT's unhedged markets newsletter. Well, great to have you both here to talk about this story, which has affected so many people on so many levels. Now, Rob, starting with you, some people have gone so far to describe the FTX collapse as a Lehman Brothers moment for the cryptocurrency industry, referring, of course, to the start of the financial crisis in 2008. Does it feel that significant a moment to you? Well, I think it is very significant, but there is two crucial differences. Mm-hmm. The first is that this is <clears throat> as big as $32 billion is. Uh, this is a smaller event uh, relative to the total world of finance, mm-hmm. and uh, which is connected to the second difference which is that as far as we can tell uh, so far, and here I'm vigorously knocking on wood, there aren't deep connections between the rest of the world of finance and crypto. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the threat of contagion seems smaller, we hope. 
so bad news for, for, for crypto investors, but good news for, for the rest of us in that contagion hopefully won't spread. But when it comes to the crypto industry itself, do you think that it could be wiped out by this? Well, th- there is the classic distinction you have to make between individual cryptocurrencies or currencies so-called. We should probably talk about whether these things were ever currencies or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, an underlying te- technology of distributed ledgers known as the blockchain. And uh, the blockchain may stagger on, but will we ever uh, return to the kind of speculative fever around and the kind of industry growth around the tokens or currencies themselves, that's very difficult for me to imagine. Mm, Well surmised. Now, Scott, why is the collapse of FTX such a big deal for all crypto investors, regardless of what exchange they might currently use? So I think one of the most important points to make here is that FTX was seen almost de facto as a, as a, a representative of the broader industry and I think while Rob makes a very good point about there being little evidence of, of material financial contagion spilling out into the established financial world, there is a, a, a second tier contagion risk that I like, to, I like to phrase as reputational contagion. Mm. And I think rightly or wrongly, just by virtue of the fact that other players inhabit the same industry that FTX inhabited, they're going to be dealing with this problem for quite a long time. And to the degree that a crypto industry still exists in 15 to 20 years, I have no doubt that FTX will still be getting discussed at that point as well. Mm. Now, Scott, you got a great trip out of this. You flew to the Bahamas with, I think, 12 hours notice in search of FTX's 30-year-old founder, um, Sam Bankman-Fried. As you said, what did you learn um, on your visit? I think one of the most uh, curious things that I discovered on my trip was there, you know, plenty of critics uh, pointing the finger at the Bahamas and the regulatory framework that's in place there and asking why was this not picked up by those who were claiming to oversee this company. Um, I think that one of the most curious things that I found was that essentially, that there was this collective unwillingness to, you know, be candid about what has happened, what's taking place on the island, essentially. Um, And I think that that is part and parcel of the island's ongoing bid to try and protect a reputation for this industry that it's deemed to be part and parcel of a long-term economic strategy. Mm, Well, interesting. Shady people in sunny places, as they always used to say about these offshore locations. Now, Scott, we've put some links in the show notes to the pieces that you filed for the FT while you were in the Bahamas, if anyone's interested to read about the final days um, before FTX collapsed. An absolutely fascinating tale although obviously one with consequences. So the downfall of FTX has been a really big deal for crypto. Year to date, Bitcoin, which is by far the biggest cryptocurrency, has lost around 65% of its value. But at the FT's crypto conference a couple of weeks ago, people in the industry didn't seem to have lost their crypto optimism. Crypto is here to stay and like the technology is still there. So to be honest, like it doesn't seem to me as uh, bad as it sounds. But I'm, I'm not worried or concerned. And then uh, we'll see uh, us rise from like a phoenix once again. As well as mythical bird allegories, there were also people who felt like the FTX collapse was actually good for the industry. It's made the industry maybe set back, it's slowed down in terms of adoption but it also enhances good practices as well. Actually, I think it just gives some breathing space to those players that I really do believe in exploring 
the underlying value and the utility. But while the industry tries to explain away what happened, retail investors have seen the value of their investments in crypto crumble. Persis Love, our producer, caught up with one listener, Munir, who has lost over £4,000. He got into crypto about 18 months ago and started off just adding in the odd tenor here and there. It was so heavily addictive. Um, at the peak, I had about £20,000 invested. And it, it's a lot of money for me. And how frequently were you checking your investments? Literally all the time. And it was perhaps I'd be in the middle of conversations and meetings and then suddenly just under the table checking my crypto. Yeah, uh, it, it, it was a lot. And there was a constant kind of worry checking. I was waking up at night and checking my phone at three, four in the morning. It took a £4,000 loss for Manir to decide to cut his losses and sell out of crypto altogether. It just felt like I was constantly gambling. And I... I, it just made me feel really uncomfortable, so I completely deinvested. And could you ever foresee a future where you would reinvest in crypto? For me to kind of reinvest in that would would have to mean that I feel secure within the real world to kind of reinvest. It felt very much like a game. It felt like a game I was playing. It, the money didn't feel real. And that was a bit scary. Well, Scott and Rob, you've listened to what Manir had to say and how uncertain he and other crypto investors feel about the future and, importantly, how safe their money really is. Having heard that clip, what's your reaction to how young people are using crypto? Well, I would say that we did a lot of people a disservice, or the world did a lot of people a disservice, by calling these tokens currencies in the first place. Uh, They were not before, they are not now, and they are incredibly unlikely ever to become currencies in anything like the way um, dollars or pounds or euros are. Uh, Mm. They're not a store of value. That's been proven. Uh, They're not a unit of account. Nobody um, does their balance sheet in in, uh, Bitcoin terms. And they're not a medium of exchange. Still to this day, very, very few things are bought using crypto. Uh, What these are is a highly speculative technology bet. They're closer to being like an equity or an option on an equity than they are to being a currency. And uh, I think people who got into this were tricked by the name. Mm. And I I think that's much to be regretted. (laughs) There's a lesson there. Well, certainly is. And it's been a costly lesson for Manir, but I mean, Scott, at least he got his money out um, before an exchange collapsed and took it away, which is obviously what's happening to lots of the former customers of, of FTX. But what are other crypto exchanges doing to try and reassure customers that their deposits aren't going to vanish in a puff of smoke like the FTX customers did? Yeah, I think that there's, um, I mean, listening to, to Manir, they're actually quite sadly reminded me of a very similar conversation that we had um, earlier in the summer in the wake of the the Terra Luna crisis, where this is a, you know, a, a, a point that will stay with me really forever. A lot of the discussions that we have about crypto market crashes are about facts and figures, but we often forget that there are human stories to this. 
Um, and there is a, a bridge in, in Seoul in South Korea where the company behind the Terra stablecoin was based um, that witnessed this influx of police presence because law enforcement were worried that people in South Korea who had lost money were going to be jumping off the bridge and trying to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, it's very important to remember. Uh, it, I'm very happy to hear that Munir got his money out in time. But there are so many folks that are not as fortunate. Um, but in terms of what competing crypto exchanges are doing, I think there's now there's a there's a very significant discussion across the industry of of providing proof of reserves. Mm. Um, that is to say that you know exchanges are financially stable, unlike FTX proved that it wasn't. Um, we actually saw an email that Coinbase sent to its customers in the wake of FTX's collapse, and they sort of jumped at this very quickly and said, you know, we want our customers to be aware that our assets are back one-to-one and all that sort of stuff. Um, you don't so want anybody that, else pulling their money out in a panic. Yeah, and I, th- <clears throat> I think that there's a, you know, we also mentioned earlier this idea that, you know, in some sense, FTX's collapse is good for the industry because it clears the industry out of bad members. Um, I don't entirely know if that's a very good good analogy. Again, I think it's important to point out that FTX was a giant of this industry. Yeah. Um, and... It's almost, it reminds me almost as though, you know, imagine an American football team loses its star quarterback and says, oh, well, you know, we can use this to our advantage because perhaps that quarterback wasn't actually a very good player after all, but you've lost a key member of the team, right? So I don't, I think it's a really favorable way of looking at things. It's hard to sort of, you know, rationalize a way that this is good for the crypto industry. Several times we've mentioned regulation and Mm whether there's been a regulatory failure here. Uh, I actually take a different view on that issue, which is that, if anything, the regulation we had, the financial regulation we had, was probably a bad idea. I mean, this was always the Wild West and sort of uh, half-hearted efforts at regulating or... Uh, pretending to regulate just made things worse. We all would have been better off if regulators everywhere had said, sorry, guys, this is beyond us. This is not finance as we understand it. Uh, Buy at your own risk. And if anything, I think the people who need to have a hard look in the mirror are the traditional finance institutions that put their toes in the water whether those be asset managers or custody banks, um, I think it was totally inappropriate. Of course, this is easy to say in retrospect, but I think it was totally wrong for them to say, in an effort to seem cutting edge, we're really looking into this area. We want to grow a business helping our customers with this stuff. Uh, They should have stayed um, miles away. Mm. I mean, to really take it back to basics here, why isn't crypto regulated while other asset classes are because if you go online if you look on tiktok it's so ridiculously easy to find out about cryptocurrencies to see influencers peddling different currencies to be able to go online set up an account and buy and trade cryptocurrency it feels no different as a punter from trading shares but yet somehow the consumer has to get their heads around it that they could lose all their money, as people have done, um, and, and there's absolutely no comeback. Well, everything that you just said, Claire, could equally be uh, well be said of sports betting. 
And I think the two are probably very similar. It's very easy to find places to bet on sports online. It's very easy to lose your money. Uh, and it's very easy to trick yourself into thinking you're engaged in a profitable activity when you're just involved in a kind of wild speculation. Mm. So maybe it should be regulated, but it should be regulated like sports, uh, sports gambling or, or smoking or alcohol or something like that. Whereas if it's a financial regulator that regulates it, it is sort of saying in advance, this is real finance. Mm. Right. It's giving it a patina of legitimacy. I don't think it has any business uh, receiving. Scott may Scott may take a different view. Yeah. Well, no, I think I think that that's a it's certainly a conversation that I've been very interested in in, in following over the last uh, certainly throughout 2022. But, but before then as well, I think that, you know, what what regulators decide to do, but more importantly, sometimes what they decide not to do is is very telling. Um, but again, I think that conversation to a degree is is changing. Um, certainly. Um, in the European Union, we've got the markets and crypto assets or, or Mika regulation that's expected to make landfall in the next couple of years or so. Um, and Mika is, you know, sort of widely considered this watershed moment for regulators to try and get a grip on crypto. Um, but there, you know, so the folks that I speak to on that subject in Europe will tell me that they think about that same problem that Rob has just done a really good job of summarizing on the podcast, which is to what degree are we concerned that we're by virtue of welcoming this industry into the regulatory sphere, legitimizing things that we perhaps don't want to legitimize. But then the other side of the coin is there is a desire for in, for consumers to be protected by, you know, onshore regulation rather than transacting with platforms that chief regulators don't have a clue about because they don't fall within their purview. So it is a balancing act, I think, that regulators across the world have been trying to balance. But um, I think different, you know, jurisdictions have been taking different approaches to this, and it's it's certainly not going to end. That's a, a conversation for 2023 as well. Mm. Well, all of those health warnings clearly haven't put young investors off. For the next part of the podcast, we're going to focus on the millions of investors who are still holding crypto, probably sitting on some significant losses, and wondering what to do next. Thank you to all of the listeners who responded to my recent Instagram story on the topic of will you keep your faith in crypto? I'm going to read out a couple of the responses that I got. My husband invested £3,000 of our savings in crypto and now it's worth less than half that amount. He's convinced it will rise, but I'm not so sure. And here's one from another investor. I'm not buying any more crypto, but I have enough faith in crypto to hold on to what I've got. Thankfully, I only invested a small amount of my overall portfolio. Well, I was relieved to hear that many of you only hold a small amount of crypto in relation to your overall investment. So while these losses are unwelcome, it hasn't wiped you out. And you have the luxury of hanging on for some potential upside in the future. But will it ever come? Now, Rob and Scott, you've heard what the listeners have to say. How do you feel all of these ructions will affect the crypto world going forward? Starting with you, Scott. Uh, I think, you know, a, a response that you read out there that was quite telling was uh, that somebody is planning on on sort of holding what they have and, and sort of hoping for an upside in the future. That's, that's part and parcel of really, it strikes at the essence of what the crypto investment scene is for a lot of retail investors. We mm. hear the phrase hodl a lot on crypto Twitter and, and sort of on Reddit and places Hold like that. Hold on for dear life. Um, 
exactly hold on for dear life. And I think that, you know, that's, that's a, a, a part or a basis of the crypto industry that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon. It's worth pointing out that while a lot of folks maybe were attracted to crypto over the last two years, at least, you know, the, the beginning of that period during the bull run where we saw not only FTX, but other, other crypto exchanges sort of plaster a lot of advertisements mm-hmm. really in prominent places like the Super Bowl, for example. Uh, a lot of people would have come into the industry at that point, but there is this sort of underbelly of the crypto industry where there are really, truly faithful folks that, that, that believe in these markets because of their sort of ideological libertarian foundation on their worldview of politics, right? They don't want a third party intermediary in their financial life. They believe that there is a right to total financial privacy. Mm-hmm. Some of these things are, are sort of central to the to the to the value statement of crypto, so to speak. And I think that that won't go away anytime soon, regardless of any potential volatility that we'll see next year. One of the speakers at the crypto conference we mentioned was the famous crypto skeptic and author of the case against crypto, Stephen Deal. He had this to say about the value of crypto. I mean, it's an investment that has no fundamentals. Um, it's not a tangible asset. It has exactly the same economics as a Ponzi scheme. So then you could ask in developing economies, is it functioning as a medium of exchange? And the answer is objectively no. It doesn't function as money. As an investment, uh, it pays out old investors from new investors. Um, this, to me, does not seem to be uh, a vehicle for financial inclusion in the developing world. It seems to be a vehicle for predation. Well, some strong words there. Rob, what do you make of what he had to say? Uh, I am more or less with him there. Now, <laughs> you, might you, will, well, you will hear from some crypto enthusiasts, say a Bitcoin enthusiast, well, if you bought your crypto, say, in late 2018 or 2019, you're still up 400%. And that is true. But the fact is that most of the people uh, that bought crypto, and various studies have shown this, bought it while the price of crypto was way higher than it mm. was now, when it was $60,000 uh, in 2021. So most of the people who have ever bought a crypto coin are way down on that crypto coin. That makes it hard to come back, I think. And when this happens to stocks and this kind of total lack of faith, uh, revulsion or capitulation happens to all asset classes. Mm. But when it happens to stocks, eventually the stocks become so cheap that the fundamentals of those stocks, the dividends they pay out, the profits they earn, Mm. look so absurdly underpriced that people start coming back. Uh, The yields are just too high to pass up, despite the sentiment being totally washed out. The problem for crypto, uh, as was just pointed out, is that there are no fundamentals. So there is nothing to get so cheap you can't pass it up. So how do we get back to $60,000 on Bitcoin? I just don't see it. Now, we know that crypto is unregulated, but Scott, is there any faint hope that millions of investors who have lost money in the FTX collapse could ever see any of it ever again? Well, I think that, you know, one hopes that's the case, of course. I think that, um, you know, the the 
bankruptcy case is obviously still ongoing and we'll have to we'll have to sort of see how that unfolds over the coming weeks and months i think one potentially even longer than that one one thing that comes to mind when you when you asked me that question claire was i spoke with a uh with a insolvency practitioner recently who said one of the chief problems with crypto insolvency cases is that the risks involved in recovering assets are not really very clearly understood uh you know with some of these firms because there is a lack of of regulation or at the very least regulatory clarity these assets are completely opaque was a, a phrase that that someone actually gave me recently so i think that's a, a a really significant problem but if i could also just add uh to what rob mentioned uh, on the back of stephen deal's um clip there where you know that this idea that if you bought in 2017 you'd still be up uh, and as rob said that that is is true but i think it's also quite a lazy argument and you could make that claim um you know from the sort of inception of any crypto coin you can say well if you bought it on day one no matter what's happened this year the chances are you're still up it's sort of like if i could use a bit of a an analogy it's as though i say i don't go uh to the gym or i do no exercise for the next 30 years of my life um and in 30 years time chances are i'm going to be quite unhealthy i'll have all sorts of health problems but i'll say well i'm still stronger than i was when i was a newborn baby it doesn't really say very much um and i think that that's a uh, you know it's a it's a pretty bad argument and it's a hard sell i think for those folk those folks that have been wiped out this year through a period of 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 all sorts of crises that have come ftx just being the last one this is also a classic example of survivorship bias right the the coins that are still around are the ones that happen to still be around and yeah those are up but there's a lot of coins that you might have bought at their inception that don't even exist anymore Right. And so uh, you, you, in, in your analysis of whether crypto has been a good investment or not, you have to include all the coins that don't exist anymore. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. Now, one popular topic of discussion on messaging boards at the moment is about crypto wallets, which people think could be a way to protect their digital assets rather than just leaving them on the platform that they've used to buy um, and trade. You can have a hot wallet, you can have a cold wallet. Scott, do you think that there is any advantage to, to people of, of, of using these things? What's your take? Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say um, from my own perspective per se whether or not that's an advantage, but I, I will say that sort of the industry, um, the common industry assumption is that it's it's generally better practice or safer to hold your your crypto coins in a cold wallet, that is to say, one that's not running on the internet, than say on an exchange, um, perhaps for obvious reasons. But uh, I think you know that it's a really useful segue to discuss um, security in this space. That you know we see almost on a weekly basis um, a new hack that's that's targeted one particular crypto protocol or application or some such. And I think that you know the industry is from a bird's eye view, view, sort of fraught with a whole host of cyber slash security problems. So I would just suggest to anybody who holds any crypto to be as careful as they possibly can, um, but be aware that there are these risks. And, you know, the industry has a, um, you know, if I can be candid, a terrible track record of of security, broadly speaking. Mm-hmm. So even if it's in a wallet, sadly, it's no guarantee that it's going to be safe. 
Well, great advice, as always, from our FT experts. Thanks once again to Scott Cipollina, the FT's digital assets correspondent based in London, and Rob Armstrong, the FT's US financial correspondent and author of the Unhedged newsletter. You can sign up at ft.com slash unhedged. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks a lot, Claire. This was fun. Thanks, Claire. Appreciate it, as always. That's it for Money Clinic this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. If you want to dive even deeper, do check out our crypto series on Tectonic, where Jemima Kelly casts a sceptical eye over the industry. It's free to listen, and you'll find episodes on your usual podcast platform or app. If you've got a money issue that you'd like to chat to me about on a future show, then get in touch. Our email address is money at ft.com or DM me on Twitter, Instagram or TikTok. I'm at Claire B. Money Clinic was produced by Persis Love. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa. Our sound engineer is Breen Turner. And the original music is by Metaphor Music. And finally, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's the small print over and done with. See you back here next week. Goodbye. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.